Hello, and welcome to Lines from Loganberry, the official Loganberry Books podcast series. We are a local indie bookshop located in the historic Larchmere neighborhood of Cleveland, Ohio. With this podcast, we hope to stay connected to you as we weather the coronavirus storm together. Every week, we will help you discover new books, rave about our latest favorite reads, reveal niche stories about Loganberry, link you to local authors, ask some interesting questions about the literary world, and check in with our friendly bookstar cat, Otis. Join our listener support program, where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to help keep this podcast going. Go to our website, loganberrybooks.com, and follow our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts, all at loganberrybooks, to stay up to date and to find out how to best support us during these ever-shifting times. Thank you for listening, and enjoy. The Intellect and Inspiration Local Voices series seeks to engage and motivate the listener during these challenging times through the thought-provoking work of a local author. This week, Local Voices Manager Maisha Hedden interviews Dr. Todd Michney and Kathleen Crowther, creators of the book The Making of Cleveland's Black Suburb in the City, Lisaville and Lee Harvard. So I think for any kind of historical work like this, knowing what archives are available and how to use those to the greatest effect is really, that's what I bring to it as a, as a professional historian. The more that we can tell these local stories and get a sense of how this played out on the local level, it just explains to us our history as Clevelanders, but it also explains why it's important to look at a city like Cleveland and not always just go to the biggest cities in the country. It tells a more complete and nuanced story. This is the second episode of two that features Maisha's conversation with Todd. So if you missed last week's, make sure to go back and listen to the first half of their discussion. Todd and Kathleen's book can be purchased at store.loganberrybooks.com with specific links in the description. Well, I think that so much of the publication is itself uh, sort of a form of restorative journalism, right? It's kind of restoring this lost history. And also, I don't think I go too far in saying like sort of um, restoring the dignity and grandeur of a people. How in the world did you find the documentary uh, evidence that the Cedar, the Lee Harvard Shopping Center was actually originally owned, um, purchased, and constructed and owned by African Americans as a collective. I believe that you wrote in the book Mm. that it was funded by like uh, issuing stock certificates to residents of the community Mm -hmm. because they understood themselves as living in sort of a retail desert and uh, retail and also grocery Mm -hmm. desert and they needed to construct something for themselves. It was an amazing story. Well, we have in Cleveland, um, an incredible resource, which is the archives of the Cleveland Press. So the Cleveland Press was the, the leading newspaper, even a wider circulation than the Cleveland Plain Dealer until it shut down in 1982. And when they shut down, they, deno- they, they donated all their clipping files to Cleveland State University. Um, this is what's known as a press morgue. So uh, these newspapers we were talking about earlier, they would save all their clippings and they would use those as research files if they needed to write on 
a, a given topic. And you can even look up individuals. If, if you're looking for ordinary Clevelanders, they have thousands of thousands of envelopes with clippings on ordinary people that appeared in the paper. And if you just go in and you start looking up things like Lee Road, Lee Harvard, there are just uh, hundreds of clippings in these little envelopes and you can really uncover those stories uh, in a way that would be really difficult otherwise. If you had to do keyword searches in a, a database, um, it'd take a lot longer to uncover some of the stories. So I just uh, started putting it together. Um, once you've got some dates to work with, you can start doing those keyword searches in a paper like, uh, uh, like the Colin Post or the Cleveland Plain Dealer. You can start linking it up with other sources to be able to try and um, to tell that. So I think for any kind of historical work like this, knowing what archives are available and how to use those to the greatest effect is really, that's what I bring to it as a, as a professional historian. Uh, I think there's other skills involved uh, that Cleveland Restoration Society did an amazing job um, uncovering the photographs, interviewing the residents. Um, I think the insights in the book are really wonderful that uh, people tell their story in their own words and give a real personal touch to what I'm doing with more kind of um, formal sources. Well, you know, I agree with you that the, um, the personal stories add a remarkable touch. So as a historian and an academic, you talked about, um, as I mentioned before, you talked about blockbusting. So for listeners who might not be familiar with that, this is what happens with blockbusting. It's that um, in a majority white community, real estate brokers convince whites that the blacks are coming and they're going to lower your property value. Therefore, you should uh, fire sale your house to them at a very low price. Um, the broker then purchases the, purchases the house and resells it to a black person at a much higher um, uh, principal value, right? At, at a higher rate. So if the house was $20,000, they'll sell it to a black person at $40,000. And then they worked um, in cahoots with lenders to then uh, charge African-Americans a higher interest rate and then with the insurance companies to charge that black people a higher insurance rate, thereby essentially reducing the, fam the family's um, wealth. Now, that's something that everybody, everybody who's a good American should understand. Like the, and I think that we know, for, for those of us who follow these things, we know that history in Chicago, right? I don't think that history is as well documented in Cleveland. I just don't think there are that, um, and there are that many books about blockbusting inside of Cleveland as there had been um, written in the Chicago neighborhood. Where I'm going with that is that, okay, so that's good to know that it happened in Cleveland, but it was, it's lovely to see the side-by-side -side story of this family that moved into Lisaville and said, you know what? We knew we we're paying too much for the house and we knew the interest rate was too high, but we decided that that's what we had to do in order to achieve ownership. You're right, it adds context and color to the story. It's actually a really super important thing. I think the example you just gave gives the perfect intersection of the structural inequalities and the kind of personal agency and being able to transcend those or at least just decide, you know what, we're going to be taken advantage of in terms of the price we're paying and the interest rate we're paying on this mortgage. But we have enough resources. We're going to make go of it anyways. And we're going to create this, you know, upscale black neighborhood 
by any way that we can. So I, I think it's important to uh, know that local story. It is true we have a lot more books about New York, uh, Chicago, Los Angeles, even Detroit than Cleveland. And that's why I chose in, in my book to write about Cleveland. And I just think the more that we can tell these local stories and get a sense of how this played out on the local level, it just explains uh, to us our history as Clevelanders, but it also explains why it's important to look at a city like Cleveland and not always just go to the biggest cities in the country. It tells a more complete and nuanced story. Every story is important. In fact, uh, I was blown away by a story that I have to say I knew nothing about. And that was a story about Springfield, Ohio. So I think with um, uh, a lot of African-Americans know about the burning of that African-American town in, uh, I think it was Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, or yeah, the Greenwood District, uh, Black Wall Street. Black Wall Street. But I mean, I can't think that a lot of African-American know that nearly the same thing happened in Springfield, Ohio. Right. Um, I think that someone wrote a master's thesis on the uh, white riots uh, against black people in Springfield. And these were not that uncommon. If you look around the, uh, actually more of the, the kind of border areas of the South. So if you look in Southern Ohio, uh, Southern Illinois, Indiana, uh, you find these uh, race riots where local whites are attacking black communities. You find lynchings. There were numerous lynchings in Southern Illinois, um, in Indiana, uh, and in some towns in Ohio as well. So there were these things called sundown towns where um, black people weren't welcome to be on the streets after sunset. Um, those are very common. So, you know, what happened was a lot of black people started in these areas started moving to bigger cities like Cleveland because there was a strength in numbers. Maybe you were uh, corralled into a place like Cedar Central that was overcrowded, but at least there's a strength in numbers there uh, and you weren't being um, you know, forced off the streets uh, at night or, or being uh, burned out of your houses. And so um, that was a part of this was a little more speculative because we were able to place Arthur Bussey in Springfield at that time. And someone else I think had written a master's thesis about uh, the incident. We don't know if he was personally exposed to that or how it motivated him, but the implication is that you leave a place like Springfield and you move to some place that's got uh, more opportunity like Cleveland. And so that was how we um, speculated that, he, you know, and we know that other African-Americans um, in similar circumstances made that choice to move on, uh, to move from the smaller uh, cities to the larger ones. There's a whole book on this. Um, I forget wrote it uh, about movement from these smaller uh, towns and cities in Ohio to bigger ones like Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Columbus. Yes, I mean, and certainly uh, any rational person would leave Springfield after a white riot came in and burnt down your town. Um, and it's interesting too, because I think up in Cleveland, it might have actually been among the Miles Heights story. You said that, um, that there was a formation of a black militia to protect against uh, white rioters. And then I know in the later history of Lee Harvard um, that uh, the African-American uh, residents formed an auxiliary police to do self-policing. I thought that was actually pretty relevant to mm. what's going on today. Right. Uh, that was interesting. Uh, it's kind of a black middle class formation um, to, you know, kind of supplement, uh, to take responsibility for their policing their own community. 
this might be also something that traces back to Southern roots. Um, you know, there's a felt need to uh, defend oneself. Uh, a lot of rural Southern black families had, you know, shotguns and things like that. The, the, the problem down there was you're obviously outgunned against the Klan. Some authors have written about the formation of the Black Panther Party in Oakland and how um, there's a lot of Southern roots there. A lot of people who moved to Oakland and later joined the Black Panther Party there, they'd been exposed to white vigilantism and they had this tradition of um, armed self-defense. And so if we look at a lot of the ways people are living in these spaces, a lot of times they're drawing on the Southern heritage and some of the lessons of you know, the way they feel that they need to organize to protect themselves, to protect their investment, to support their family. Um, a lot of those were survival mechanisms from the rural South that they transplanted to these new locations and used as a way to, to build these new communities. To attach this maybe to what we'd said in the previous comment, not only was, it, was there a Springfield, Ohio, the Springfield, Illinois, and it was a riot uh, by whites in Springfield, Illinois, led to the formation of the NAACP in 1909. And this was especially egregious because this was A.M. Lincoln's hometown. So after white people um, rioted against blacks in Springfield, Illinois, a group of um, African-American intellectuals, as well as uh, white supporters, white intellectuals, came together and formed the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People in direct response to that Springfield riot in 1908. Um, and so, you know, there is this little known but longstanding history of violence against um, African-Americans in smaller towns and cities that led to this great migration to bigger population centers. Thank you. Um, so speaking of that, uh, I was wondering if, you know, as you, as you wrote, because you wrote this history of Lisaville and Lee Harvard, are you seeing, how do you think that its history and its formation are playing out today? Um, Rust Publishing put out a really kind of interesting book. It's called 50 Maps in Cleveland. And, you know, one of the maps is of like, you know, where people of different races live in Cleveland. And it still looks like African-Americans are corralled onto the east side of Cleveland. Like, do you think, like, do you suspect as a historian um, and the person who's meticulous that maybe some of those still, same forces are still at play? I do. I think that um, lender discrimination still exists. Uh, since 1968, it's been illegal, but lenders are always finding, they're always coming up with creative new ways to discriminate against people. And not to take away from the rich history of this community, but, you know, homes in Lee Harvard have not appreciated the extent that, uh, that ones in further outlying areas have. So, you know, we have to kind of, again, balance that um, perspective between agency and people personally striving and succeeding despite adversity, but also how even um, relatively affluent black families are disadvantaged in the society as a whole and um, have not been able to uh, accumulate the same amount of personal and family wealth that white families have. That's why it's so important to look in the aggregate and look um, beyond just individual success stories. It's so important to um, record those success stories, appreciate those success stories, but not just then assume that everything's fine and that, uh, oh, if, if you were creative enough, you could have found some workaround, you could have found some ways to, to succeed. We need to make sure that we have policies in place that can advantage 
uh, everyone and provide everyone with an opportunity to accumulate wealth and to, to have a um, secure um, basis to, to, to pass on wealth to uh, one's um, uh, future generations. Um, so yes, I think that Cleveland still is very segregated. You can see these um, clear vectors of black population movement to the Southeast, especially. And that also has to do with the history of race relations and some of the things we've been talking about. Um, one reason why it's very difficult to achieve residential integration in this country is because white people and black people have very different ideas about what constitutes an integrated community. If you interview uh, most white Americans, um, on average, they think that 10% black is about a pretty nice um, balanced community. And as you move closer to 30%, white people become less and less comfortable um, uh, with that as an integrated community. If you talk to African-Americans, it's much closer to 50%. They consider that an integrated community. And historically, uh, black families have been reluctant to move to areas where they would be the first or the only black family. In fact, there was a term for this called pioneers. And uh, when families like the Stewarts moved to Lee Harvard in 1953, they were the only black family in a 20, 30 square block radius. Um, and they were harassed. Their windows were broken. There was paint splatter on their house. So they were not welcomed initially by their white neighbors. And a lot of black families didn't want to deal with that and um, uh, didn't really want to have to um, bear that burden. Uh, but once you know more families started moving there, it was uh, there was more support. There was less uncomfortable. So it's proven very difficult to maintain uh, a balance. I mean, some some of the families that I interviewed were not necessarily even aiming for that. Uh, they just wanted to live their lives and have the best houses that they could afford to buy. Uh, they didn't. They weren't committed to some ideal of racial integration per se. But I do think that it's important for us to. Um, learn how to live together and to not perpetuate these ideas about property values. Um, I think a lot of the legacy of these earlier eras when we did have such explicit blockbusting and, you know, the kind of playing on of racial fears, I think that there's a, an echo of that that continues to this very day. You know, um, I thought in many ways that your book with Cleveland West Restoration Society was the story of affordable housing which I don't think a week passes without there being another story about affordable housing in the United States, right? Because mm -hmm. as I understand it, the reason why, let's do Lee Harvard, for everybody who's gonna read the book, there's a distinction between Lee Seville and Lee Harvard, that with Lee Harvard, you have these um, white Eastern European ethnics who are living there, right? White Eastern European ethnics, why? Because they're not, they're not affluent old money. They're looking for affordable home ownership just like everybody else, right? Mm -hmm. And African-Americans were moving into Leesville because frankly, they didn't want to be a part of the poverty in Central Cedar. Like, you know, talking about restorative journalism and stories of like hope and overcoming, you spend a lot of time talking about how Leesville, Lee Harvard, were communities of, um, you know, the proverbial doctors, lawyers, and teachers. So these were people who were African-Americans who were upperly mobile, but were looking for affordable housing. Um, I wish that I had a question here, but I just thought it was really super interesting because you have very much the same thing still going on right now, right? With gentrification, 
right? White people looking for affordable housing and pushing black people out. And then of course, communities like Euclid, Ohio, where you have black people looking for affordable housing and white flight again. It's, uh, you know, you can take this all the way back to 1920 and you still have the same issue of where do we find affordable housing and how the United States completely psychotic racial dynamic plays into that. Sorry, big no, I, I think the I, I think these two populations have had intertwined histories, and that that was actually what brought me to the topic of my book originally. Um, mm -hmm. I was interested in the interactions between Southern and Eastern European immigrants and African Americans. It has something to do with my own personal background. Um, my uh, grandparents, uh, my 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 grandparents were Slovak immigrants, didn't come to Cleveland until the 1950s, but. I noticed that these populations were living in close proximity. Um, before I became interested in Lisaville, I was interested in Mount Pleasant, where there was an African-American enclave dating to the turn of the century in, in an area that was mostly Italian and Jewish. And so there's been a, a close history of these groups following each other, especially of African-Americans moving into former Jewish neighborhoods, places like Glenville, places like Cleveland Heights, um, and so on. Um, so I think that the working class whites were also looking to make a step up and make it into the uh, middle class to buy these homes. What's unfortunate is they very quickly bought into the kind of uh, racialized uh, idea that, you know, black people must be kept out at all costs. And, you know, if you're going to have a house that appreciates in value, then, you know, you can't have any black people living in the area. So they, they, fairly quickly bought into that idea and, you know, probably assimilated more quickly into the society as a result. Um, and then they probably also felt as though this dream of black upward mobility came at their expense. Uh, you get this re these really sad interviews from the blockbusting in Lee Harvard where these white residents are saying, you know, now we have to go move and pay, you know, more money than we can afford just to live in a white community. And of course it raised the idea, like, why, why don't you just stay, right? But somehow they had accepted the terms of that um, argument and felt as though they had no choice but to leave, uh, even if they were going to pay an economic price themselves for that. And they blamed black people. They didn't blame the system that, you know, uh, perpetuated these inequalities in housing. They blamed black people who were also trying to achieve the same level of economic security and comfort that they themselves uh, were seeking. Uh, so that's what makes this really kind of a sad story and one that's still playing out today. I, again, I, I think that these still these housing dynamics still are at play, even if they aren't as blatant and as confrontational as they once were. A lot of these ideas persist, and that's why we still see um, such a degree of segregated living in a place like Cleveland or any other large city for that matter. Your book was therapeutic for me. I was not therapeutic. That's not really the word because I need therapy, but it was, it just reconfirmed a lot of uh, my own personal history that I hear from my parents. So my parents built a house in Moreland Hills, the village of Moreland Hills in 1974. They had been looking for that property for two years and they couldn't get anyone to sell them land. How did my parents eventually purchase land? They had a nice white woman proxy for them, right? She purchased the land for them and immediately sold to my parents. And then it was another, I don't even know how long before they could get bank financing to construct their house. And so eventually um, 
Ohio Savings, which was a Jewish lender, right? It was a Jewish bank. Finally gave my parents the money to construct their house. And it was, I think that you were talking about this, about how you were doing the oral histories with the people um, over in Lee Harvard, Lisa Bill, about how people thought of that they had these individual problems, but through talking to you and learning more about the pro, um, problem um, uh, project that they realized that it was actually a collective thing that is part of our collective history uh, as a people. And I know for that alone, I'm really, really super grateful to the book. So another thing that I'm very grateful for is your use of language. And I will flat out say, I just thought as like a white person, I don't even know how you did that. I just think it's amazing. I don't know if you learned it in school, but I wanna point out a couple things that you did. Okay, so first of all, when we were talking about sharecropping, you said debt peonage, which is what it is, right? Like call it what it is, it's debt peonage. Um, another place in the book, when you said reconstruction, you said a brief period of black political empowerment. Oh my God, I think I exhaled when I heard it described like that. I'm like, exactly. It was a brief period of black political power following the civil war. And the other thing that you did not say, and like every time you didn't say it, I noticed that you didn't say it, when you were going over the, when you were covering the histories of these remarkable men, such as Arthur Johnston and um, Arthur, is it Bussy or Busey? Bussy? Well, since we, we're not sure, but we think Bussy. You think Bussy. You never once said the son of former slaves, mm. which is an expression that I hate <laughs> because what does that even mean? So how did you think about saying the right thing? How did you think about using language to reform the narrative? Yeah. Or is that intuitive for you? Well, well, no, no, it's not because it's changing all the time. I think that the awareness that we should talk about people as being enslaved against their will is something that's relatively recent. Um, I avoid, I consciously avoid using the term slave. Um, and uh, another one that a big one in my book was that I consciously avoid using the term ghetto. Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes uh, it might be appropriate if you're talking about the structural factors that force people into an area and it's very specifically applied to Cedar Central, but it's something, it's a term that's gotten so many negative connotations used so loosely. Um, people don't understand the history of the term that was originally applied to Jews living uh, in outside of Venice who are restricted to one island in the Venetian Lagoon. I mean, so uh, there's one currently now where I think people are increasingly capitalizing the term black, uh, which is not something I did in my first book, but I'm increasingly doing now. So I think you can always learn and uh, be aware of how terminology shifts. If you look at the period that I write about when the common usage and accepted usage among black people was colored. Uh, but Negro was being promoted as a kind of more specific term. If you think about uh, uh, Marcus Garvey's um, uh, United Negro Improvement Association. Um, but then, you know, and, and at that time, I actually had uh, elderly interviewers who told me that black was like a fighting term. If someone called you black, that was like, you're ready to go to fisticuffs, right? So I think, um, you know, there was a period when Afro-American uh, was preferable to African-American and some older community members 
aren't always comfortable with the term African American. Um, so the, it's 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 some especially if you're not black yourself, um, if you're white, to to learn how to um, listen, to learn how to speak uh, respectfully. Uh, it, it it takes some doing, and I won't say that I've successfully um, always uh, achieved that. I, I just I'm always aspiring to try and listen and uh, get it right. I think it's important to be um, conscious and specific. Um, I think it's something we're all working on. Uh, because language matters clearly. I think for me, just the best thing was never referring to anybody as a slave. So, I mean, I know that I'm simplifying right now, but to me, like a person can't be a slave. If like you're on the Kentucky side of the Ohio river and then you're on the Ohio side and like, it's completely changed your identity, then that's not an identity. <laughs> like if all I have yeah. to do is be on the other side of this river, it's not who I am. Um, so thank you for that. So really rich book, um, The Making of Cleveland's Black Suburb in the City, Lisa Bell and Lee Harvard. Um, actually, last question that I wanna ask you about the book before we get out of here is like after reading through this, I'm sorry, after doing this research and writing it, like what do you think your next product is? Like what else did this inspire you to think about? Well, it's funny you should ask because uh, I was inspired by what we learned about Cleveland to look at the history of African-Americans in the construction industry on a nationwide scale. Now, I'm from Cleveland originally. Um, might as well say it, you know, Maisha, you and I went to the same high school. That's right. Um, so <laughs> so um, there's that, but I live in Atlanta now. And I was so uh, fascinated by the story of African-Americans working in construction, starting construction companies. I was curious whether this uh, held true on a national level. And it turns out there are much better places to study this phenomenon than Cleveland. As am huh. amazing as these stories were, and as how many black builders we had in Cleveland, there are many more in Atlanta, in Houston, in Dallas, in uh, Chicago. And so I'm starting to, to try and tell this story on a national level. And um, I want to look consciously at the period before affirmative action because there's this kind of idea that African-Americans didn't make any inroads into construction work until affirmative action. So I'm actually starting in 1865 and going to 1965 and looking at what happened when people um, uh, came out of uh, the um, post-Civil War experience. Um, they tried to break into Southern uh, labor markets and had some success. There were some trades that were dominated by African-Americans in the South, like plastering, um, bricklaying, like Arthur Bussey uh, in the book, was one of the most common building trades that African-Americans found their way into, um, carpentry. Then there were other ones, especially newer uh, trades like electrician, where white unions were much more successful in excluding uh, black uh, workers from uh, participating. So I've been inspired to try and tell the story on a national level. And I'm also increasingly conscious of the financing side. This also comes out of the Cleveland work. and um, just the kind of experience of, of, of lenders like Quincy Savings and Loan that you mentioned. Uh, there were African-American owned insurance companies like the Atlanta Life Insurance Company, the North uh, Carolina Mutual Insurance Company that funded whole um, suburban subdivisions in places around the country. And so I'm, I'm very curious about that financing side and not just who did the physical work building the houses, but who put up the money for this. Albert Taborn raised a hundred thousand dollars in like what crazy year was that? It was like nineteen thirty or something. 
I think you're thinking of Herbert Chauncey, who was the kind yes. of uh, premier black businessman in uh, Cleveland. And yeah, he raised uh, a pretty uh, incredible amount of capital for, for that time period um, just by pooling. I guess the irony of segregation was that, uh, you know, black people who had money didn't really have a lot of choices about where to invest other than in the community. And so you had, um, you know, the possibility to pull that money together and to buy a substantial parcel of land where you could build something like the Lisaville Enclave over time. Um, so I'm curious about those, those flows and where does the money go and how does it accumulate? Uh, I'm more sensitive to that with my work on Cleveland. Excited to explore that in this next project. Cool. All right, Logan Bear question. Okay, so question number one. Um, if you could invite three people to dinner, living or dead, who would they be? Well, I thought I would keep this focused on the book. And the first um, would actually be two people, the Stewarts, Wendell and Genevieve Stewart, who are the first black um, uh, family to move into the Harvard. And I would have loved to just hear personally their story. Um, unfortunately, Mr. Stewart died young. Um, and I'm not sure, uh, we just don't very know very much at all about him other than what he was doing when they moved to that house. He was a undertaker at the House of Wills, Black-owned um, funeral home. Uh, his wife uh, had a radio show, but we just I would just love to hear more about their story. Uh, there was a um, white pastor of the Lee Road Baptist Church, Reverend um, Donald Wright, that we found out about in the book. And the Lee Road um, Baptist Church was also a fantastic partner in this project. And this Congregation started as a, as a white um, church in Lee Harvard at the time when it was all white. And then it integrated relatively quickly. And that pastor, um, a Reverend Wright, remained as the pastor of the church until his death, I think in 1972 or 19, maybe in 1977. And so I, I would have liked to kind of hear the perspective on what that was like. A lot of the white church members either left um, the church once it started integrating or just moved out of the area more generally. Um, but if you go to Lee Road Baptist Church today, you'll see all the portraits of the pastors. It's starting with um, Reverend Donald Wright. And then um, Ruby McCullough, uh, who was the um, founder of the Harvard Community Services Center and was an um, activist in the Lee Harvard neighborhood and had a lot of ideas about how to maintain um, uh, a great quality of life there and what that community should look like. Um, really fascinating a person, and they pay tribute to her every year with, a, with an annual Ruby Ball, which is a fundraiser uh, in which they celebrate her legacy. Um, and she uh, you know, lived from, uh, from the 1950s when they, she was one of the first um, black families to buy in Lee Harvard until she lived into the late 1980s. So that would be my three Lee Harvard kind of individual personages. Okay. And then <laughs> I guess um, it makes sense to ask you this question as well. If there were a Cleveland Hall of Fame who would you nominate? Okay, well, also coming from the book, I've got two. Um, one would be Arthur Johnston, that mayor of Miles Heights um, from 1929 to 1931. Such a fascinating um, individual that we also don't know enough about as we should. Uh, he kind of dropped out of obscurity by the mid-1950s. So I would just like to know more about his story and what that was like to be a mayor of a... Um, so be a black mayor of a suburb in the 1920s. I mean, this was the time when the Ku Klux Klan actually had a resurgence all over the country, including 
in the Cleveland area and other places in the north. And he felt as though this um, effort by the Citizens League uh, to annex Cleveland may have had some Klan motivations. So what that was like to really be in that position decades before Carl Stokes even was. And then another person um, that comes out of my book, and it's also mentioned in this new book, um, Cleveland Press reporter Julian Kravchuk. He was a white reporter, and he was he was writing stories about racial racial issues at a time when, you know, it was really important to do so. And probably white people were even less comfortable then uh, than they are now talking about this. So he went and interviewed the families in Lee Harvard uh, about blockbusting and what that was like, how they felt about how the white families felt about black families moving in what the black families moving into the area aspired to, how it was all playing out while it was happening. And he ran a week long feature in the Cleveland press about this. Um, even earlier, he'd done a feature in 1957 called Negro Neighbors. And that was, again, the term of uh, common usage at the time. And it was basically an attempt to try and debunk this idea of um, uh, property value decline and the fears white people had that uh, neighborhoods were going to decline if black people moved in. He was on the ground in 1957, questioning that assumption, interviewing upperly mobile black families that moved to these areas, finding out that some white neighbors got along um, just fine with their uh, black neighbors. They may not have stayed permanently, but he really just tried to question the, 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 dominate, the dominant narrative at a time when it was just kind of getting a foothold. So I think the kind of journalism he did and his kind of being on top of important issues, uh, really, uh, you know, it was, he was doing something really important that we can still learn from today. I wish that the Cleveland Press was still around. I wish this guy was still around. <laughs> That's a great choice. All right. Thank you so much, Todd Mishney. Loganberry Books is open to the public Tuesday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can order books from us at store.loganberrybooks.com with specific links to the books discussed in this episode in the description. You can also order from us by calling the store directly at 216-795-9800 or emailing books at logan.com with your specific requests. You can support us by purchasing through our affiliate pages on bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash loganberrybooks, loganberry.papertrail.com for digital eBooks, or on libro.fm for all your audiobook needs. Join our listener support program, where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to help keep this podcast going. Again, all of these options will be linked in the description below. This episode of Lines from Loganberry was produced and edited by Margie Adams. Be sure to tune in next week for more bookish content, and thanks for listening.